What's going on, y'all? Welcome back to Retired to Hunt. I got my dog Ross here from Switchback Outdoors. He's an Idaho guy. The guy's always putting shit on the ground. You gotta go check out his YouTube if you don't already. And he actually has his own podcast too called Switchback Story. So you gotta go check that out too. But very fortunate to have Ross on the pod. Excited to talk hunting with him. Ross, what's going on in Idaho, man, besides the rain? Yeah, like you said, rain the last couple of weeks. That's all we've been doing. But, uh, mostly bear hunting right now we can uh we're lucky here in idaho from april 1st through june 30th we can hunt bears and so that's kind of right we're right in the thick of it right now i've got bait set up that i take people out on and just so just for video content and first time hunters and uh yeah pretty much it right now waiting for draw results to come in so i can actually start planning my fall because till then i don't even know what's going on it's like i have so many different applications out there and still waiting on idaho and all the, everything else I've gotten zero. So, you know, that's the joys of that is not having any tags. I'll tell you what, I just watched uh, your video. Was it your son that shot that big old black off the uh, bait the other day? Yeah. Oh, dude, yeah, he, was he was big. super excited. Yeah, he was my son. He's that's his fourth bear. And he's was really wanting to shoot a big one. And so I was like, dude, you can't shoot small ones if you want to shoot a big one. And that bear came in and I like reached up and tapped him. And I was like, dude, if you get a shot on this one, you better shoot it because that, that's a good size bear, especially here in Idaho. I know we don't get huge, huge bears. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a pretty cool, pretty cool night for sure. That was, and that's like 15 minutes from my house. He oh. went to school that day, came home. We went and we go out and sit and I got to go rebate one actually here when we're done with this and go rebate. We're going to go sit tonight on that bait. We have about three more days and then my other bait stays open until the end of June. So talk to me about the baiting regulations. I know there's several states where you can still bait for black bears. What all goes into that from the standpoint? Do you have to tell the fishing game where the bait site is? Is there a certain amount of bait or a certain kind of bait you take in? What all goes into the baiting process? So you have to get bait permits, but you don't have to tell fishing game where they're at. So you hang up these little plastic tags around a bait site. That way, if someone walks up on it, they it's got your ID on it. Um, but I always set mine where hopefully people don't ever find them because that kind of defeats the whole purpose of being away from people. Um, but you can use one metal container, like 55 gallon drum is what I use. Um, you can't be within 200 feet of water. I mean, there's quite a few restrictions. You can't be within X amount of the distance to a road or a body of water or a campground. You can't use any game meat for bait. So I use a lot of like dog food and rolled oats and molasses and scraps from the house. Donuts work really well. And uh, it's a lot of work, though. A lot of people are like, oh, that's just, you know, especially on the videos, all they see is the actual hunting side of things. But they don't see all the work that goes into packing the bait and finding the bait spots and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that's like, if you watch, like, say you watch that video, I, I asked people, because I was like, man, what do you guys want to see on a bait hunt? Because they're not super exciting hunts. You're just sitting there waiting for a bear to come in. So that was what a lot of people wanted to see. They wanted to see the whole process of what it actually takes. And I've been doing it for, I think I'm going on 10 years and actually no more, 12 years, I think, since I started uh, baiting bears. And uh, I don't really care to shoot one off a of bait anymore, but I love taking kids out of first time hunters. And uh, it's just a cool opportunity, especially for first-time hunters that have never shot an animal. You have a really controlled environment where you know the animals are going to come in. You, you know, I have my gun set up on a bipod or, or a tripod, and it makes everything really easy for first-time hunters. No, I, I'm all about the baiting. And uh, 
you know, going back to the legalities of everything. So if I walk up on your bait, you know, I see you've got your number on there, you got your name, whatever's on that tag. What are my rights? Can I sit there and hunt your bait? Like, or is it just kind of a, a moral, ethical thing that people just move on when they see it? You know what I mean? Yeah, most people will move on. But yeah, you legally can hunt it. Um, That's wild, just, man. The only thing is, like, I have to be the I have to be there when we're packing bait in. No one can pack bait onto my bait site unless I'm with them. So that's one of the things. But I've had a guy like my third year doing it. I he found my bait and he actually shot a bear off of it and was just like, "Yeah, sorry, like, what are you what are you gonna do?" I'm like, "Well, I can't really do anything. It's just kind of like that that you know the moral high ground you would hope most people do. And most people do like they see it, they're gonna be like, "Oh, I saw a bear bait up there. I'm gonna go somewhere else, or if I'm gonna set one, I'm gonna set it somewhere else." So most people are pretty good, but every once in a while you'll get some of those people that are kind of a pain. Right. That's kind of similar to uh, so down here. We've got rules about when you can put your pop-up blind out. You know, for instance, if you're hunting over water for antelope or whatever it may be. And uh, the rule is you can have the blind out. I think it's 30 days before the start of whatever season that you're about to hunt. But with that being said, on opening day, even though if you've put in all that month's worth of work, running cameras, so on and so forth, somebody fires your blind and you don't get in there soon enough, they've got every right to sit in that blind, which just blows my mind. I don't know. I don't know anybody that would do that, but I have heard stories of it being done. And it, it just goes back to what we were saying, that moral ethical high ground is like, I mean, do you really want to kill a bear so bad that you're going to sit on somebody's bait or you're going to sit in somebody's blind over water hole? I just could never fathom doing that. No, hundred percent. I could never imagine, but like I said, it takes all kinds. I mean, that's why the the legal system, the way it is the way it is. And there's, you know, there's bad people in everywhere, unfortunately. So that's a fact. So going into, uh, you know, you said you don't really care to shoot one off the bait anymore. So when you go out and you're trying to spot and stalk those black bear, what are some of the things you're looking for? And does it change from the start of the bear season to the end of the bear season? Is it kind of a follow in the snow line thing? I have no experience whatsoever hunting them. Uh, you know, I've watched a lot of videos and I'm very intrigued by it and I'm hoping to do it next year. But uh, what are you looking for when you're looking for those bears? You know, spot and stalk, you're definitely looking for the snow line. You want to see where that's – I mean, you don't want to go above the snow line at all. But, I mean, bears will be down low. They'll be high. I mean, I always tell people bears are just wherever bears are. Like, there's there's definitely mm. there's definitely hot spots where you want to look where it's a lot greener. But, like, this last year we were up in some crazy rugged country. This is actually going to be coming out on next Sunday's episode. Um, and we were walking out and I looked up in these cliffs and there was a bear, like in this little shoot of a cliff, like there's better grass everywhere else, but it's up in these rock cliffs. And then we went down another couple hundred yards and there was a big bear across on that really green stuff too. Um, yeah. Anytime I take people, like I took that Kendall gray, um, he, this is his second year coming out from Kentucky. And I was like, man, at this point we just need to look everywhere. And that, I mean, that's kind of where they were. The bears. he ended up shooting one right at snow line. Um, yeah, bears, I mean, if you're in good country, they can be anywhere. If you're not that good a country, you're going to be definitely looking for some of those, like, more green spots. But, like, where I like to spot and stock, they could they could literally be anywhere. So now when you're talking about looking for those green areas, so typically do you find uh, that there's a little more success hunting those south-facing ridges, or is it just kind of wherever there's not snow and it's greened up first? Yeah, kind of anywhere there's well, there's not a lot, and even I mean, like I said, Kenworth Kennel shot his. We were in big snow drifts, and it was just coming over into the drainage that was had a lot more green stuff in it. So they they move around. I mean, when a bear comes out of hibernation, they're they're looking for one thing, and they're looking for food, and so they're they're looking for anything they can get their their mouths on. 
And so they're going around all these green spots. And once they find a spot, sometimes, you know, it, the one thing with bears I always tell people is whenever I think I got them figured out, one will do something totally opposite. Even on these baits, like one will be coming in every night at six o'clock. And then the night you go sit, it doesn't come in till after dark. Same with spot and stock. A bear should stay. You would think if it's in a really good spot, it'll stay there for a long time in order for you to get close enough for a shot. And a lot of times they'll move on to somewhere else. And then see, then they'll have some bears that'll be there day in, day out on the same green spot for multiple days. So it's kind of, I mean, just base by base when it comes to bear hunting, I feel like. Kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't type thing, huh? So would you say that, are they pretty patternable? Like if you go out and ride and see one, one evening before the sun goes down, are you going to go out there next morning and try to find that bear? I would. If, it, if you see one in the evening, the next morning, they'll usually be somewhere close. They could be a couple hundred yards away, you know, up or down um, or left, right. But they're, they're normally going to be in that same general area. We did that with my son on that spot and stock bear hunt that comes out this next Sunday. We spotted that bear at night and we had to go get picked up by, uh, by the jet boat on the river at 730. And we spotted that bear at seven o'clock and we didn't have time to shoot it and take care of it. So we're like, oh, we'll just leave it. We'll come back in the morning and it'll be right there. Unfortunately, what we didn't know, there were some three other guys in there and they actually shot at that bear that night. Um, and so it really wasn't worth going back in there. They, they had more time than we did. We had to get back down to the boat. And so, you know, after that, but I, I hundred percent would have thought that bear would have been there the next morning if we would have been able to get back in there and those other guys wouldn't have been in there. Typically when you guys kill the bears in your area where you, uh, are primarily hunting, what's a big bear out of there? You know, if we can get anything over six foot nose to tell, um, and then weight wise, I mean, it just varies. I've, we've shot some really scrawnier bears that had bigger heads, but yeah, every, pretty much everyone's looking for like a six foot bear and that's just from nose okay. to tail. My biggest was like six and a half feet and its head was over 18 inches. And then, then uh, in Idaho, you have to take it into fishing game and they take a tooth and they age it. And that bear was 18 and a half years old, which is just crazy. Ooh. And it was a big old boar too. Good night. But yeah, Brody's incredible. So the, one, he, the one he just shot, that one was right at six foot nose to tail. So now do you find that the, uh, the bigger ones or the scrawny ones, do they just all eat the same or younger ones, older ones? What do you find? I think with anything, a younger one's going to be a little better tasting, but I like to shoot them. If, I mean, when we eat them, we want to eat them when earlier in the spring, because if you wait till later, they, they usually will get into more carcasses. They're eating elk calves or like, I, I feel like they're a lot cleaner earlier in the spring because they're mostly just been eating grass and they've been lying dormant for how many months waiting to come out of hibernation. So, but yeah, like my sons, we did, we did a pretty much all in breakfast sausage. And then we did the back straps. We like to make finger steaks out of those, but everything else we did breakfast sausage. So being in Idaho, obviously you find in some grizz country. What, what are some of the things that y'all do to try to keep those damn things at camp? So I have actually never seen a grizzly bear in Idaho. Oh, so, wow. No shit. That's yeah. good to hear. Oh yeah. So I'm in central Idaho. <laughs> Most of the grizzly bears are over in Eastern Idaho towards Yellowstone. So yeah, so like okay. everywhere I go, I don't have to worry about it. But I've got buddies yet that bait or hunt bears over in eastern Idaho, and they'll have grizzly bears coming into their bait. And that, that definitely probably makes for a little scarier night when you're walking out of there at dark. Um, but yeah, yeah, luckily, I don't have to worry about grizzly bears at all. Wow, that's cool. That's really good to hear because, I don't know, for me, for whatever reason, I think of uh, anywhere above central Wyoming, the entire state of Idaho, all of Montana, those things are just crawling around everywhere, so... So that's cool to hear. You know, hopefully uh, one day when I'm up there hunting with you, I won't have to sleep with a 10 millimeter on my chest. 
no, definitely. Like I said, that's 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 very nice not having to worry about grizzly bears. The only time I really had to worry about them ever was brown bears when we were in Alaska in August. Because on on the island we were hunting up there for sika blacktail, the only thing on that island were sika blacktail and brown bears, and so that was like the only time. And luckily we were pretty naive to it, so it worked out pretty good. We didn't we didn't run into any, we didn't see any. Um, yeah, definitely was in the back of our minds though. But yeah, in Idaho, luckily don't have to worry about grizzlies anywhere where I hunt. So that's a perfect segue into what I wanted to talk about next, and that was going to be the Alaska sika hunt. And I want to hear everything from the standpoint of. Uh, the application process, was there an application process? What time of the year? How long were you planning it? Just logistically, I want to hear about this because there's a chance I'm going to be going out in August on a caribou hunt out there. So I would love to hear everything about this hunt, man. And especially the part about getting stranded. That was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. It always makes for a better story when there's something like that. I wouldn't re- I wouldn't recommend it, but... Yeah, it didn't look fun. No, this was a very... No, luckily, like the temperature swing up there wasn't too bad. So like it could have been a lot worse and we didn't have any rain. So it could have been worse. But but how it all started was it was honestly really a last minute deal because we were waiting for. So last year, my icon tour video series was I was trying to shoot the five deer species in a single season. So we had to wait for Arizona draws to come out because that was our coos hunt. So we didn't draw coos deer. We, you know, we were going to scrap the project and wait till the next year till we actually drew coos. So I think the results come out for coos deer. Like their deadline is June 6th. So tomorrow's the last day to put in for coos in Arizona. So we didn't even know till I want to say July, or I can't remember when it came out that we drew coos. So once we drew coos, then it was like, okay, crap. Now I got to get going on sick of blacktail. And so luckily I had a buddy who lived up in Alaska and he kind of was telling us, yeah, you can just come up here and hunt sick of blacktail. You can just go buy over-the-counter tags. You can buy, as like I think you can buy up to three tags up there. I think they just changed it this year, though. You can only buy one sick of blacktail tag in certain areas. Um, and so we just started looking around, and I talked to a buddy who lives up here close to me, and I was like, hey, you're just kind of joking around. You want to go hunt sick of blacktail with me? And he's like, oh, I'll go. And I was like, oh, sweet. I have someone to go with now because at first I was just going to go by myself. And our plan was to charter a boat. So we were going to fly up there or charter a plane. So we chartered a plane that was going to fly us up to a lake. And then we were going to go, you know, bivy hunt out from there because you were already up in the Alpine. In August, they're more, they're already up in the Alpine. And then that way it eliminated us having to hike up through all the brush and crap where the brown bears were. And so we chartered the plane, got up there. Weather looked pretty good, but they, they told us they couldn't get us out on the plane. We kind of sat around for a day in their hangar just waiting to and hoping that they would, they could get us out. It was like a eight minute flight, like, one way so 16 minutes round trip to back to town so we're like oh man you wouldn't need much to get us out we had everything ready to go our our bags all weighed and finally they just said they couldn't do it and that was on a wednesday and like well we probably can't get you out till saturday now and the weather was supposed to be beautiful but they just said with the pilots and different things like that like we they couldn't get us out till saturday so we're like hey will you guys give us a refund and so they're like yeah we'll give you a refund and so i called a um another buddy up there joe from decisive outdoors he He's in the the military up there. I think it was an, I'm not sure exactly in the Coast Guard or what exactly is up there, but he was living up there. And so he kind of gave us some ideas of where to go or where to look, where he'd seen blacktails from. Pretty much anywhere in the Alpine up there, you're going to find sick of blacktail. And then I talked to another buddy who owned a commercial fishing boat in a neighboring town. And I said, hey, do you know anyone where we're at that could take us just across the bay 
and to where we can start hiking up to this these high high basins. So within 15 minutes of canceling our flight, I had a guy coming with a boat to pick us up, and we were going across the bay. I mean, just super, just random how it all happened. I mean, definitely wasn't how we wanted it to happen, but we're like, okay. So we went over there. We didn't have time to start hiking up that night, so we just set up a base camp on the the beach, which is mostly where the bears were because <laughs> the salmon and everything are running. So kind of a sleepless night. Hindsight, we should have spent one more night in town and then had him just take us out there first thing in the morning. We would have been probably a lot more well-rested, and then we wouldn't have had all our stuff just – we wouldn't have had to hang anything up in the trees that we left down there. Yeah, so we started the hike, and it was probably one of the most brutal hikes I've ever been on. It was only like a mile and three-quarters or two. I can't remember off the top of my head what it was, but it was straight up. We gained like 2,500 vertical feet, and it was just – In a mile? and. Oh, it was it was ridiculous. I'd have to look it up. I should. Well, I'm using my phone right now. As I was gonna say, I'd look at the the Onyx track to see what it was. But it's 2,100 vertical feet, and I want to say it was like a mile and a half, mile and three quarters, something like that. So it was just like straight up, and it's all wet and it's brushy. The first little bits were just busting through brush, and we finally found an avalanche chute, and so we just kind of skirted our way up this avalanche chute all the way up to the top. And then we finally found a good spot to camp on these benches. And it was, it was absolutely beautiful up there. We got so lucky with the weather. Um, if it was raining, I, I mean, it would just really suck. But we had beautiful weather. We set up or we dropped our camp. And then we just hiked up to the nearby ridge. And we're like, okay, we'll just start to look glass. And then we got up on the ridge. We started spotting deer right off the bat. They're really easy to see. They're kind of like mule deer in the, in the summertime. They get that orange coat. And we're spotting them, you know, a long ways away and some a little closer and small little spikes and does. And then we're like, okay, let's go look in this one little basin. And so we go look in this basin. We're looking down in there. We spot two bucks down there, pretty good fork and horn and then a smaller fork and horn. And everyone we talked to in town was like, dude, if you see a fork and horn on this island, they're like, shoot it. Like they don't get much bigger than that. And we're like, oh, well, that's good to know because we probably would have passed them looking for something bigger. And we didn't, we never would have saw anything bigger than a, a decent sized fork and horn. And so we're watching them and it's getting kind of late. And I was like, well, we'll just wait till morning to shoot them. So we're just kind of watching them. And then all of a sudden they come within like, I think 360 yards. And I'm like, crap, you know, what if the weather turns to crap? What if anything, you know, Time like, to go. bird in the hand is better than two in the bitch. So we're like, so I got set up on the gun and, uh, one shot at 360 yards and it goes over and dies in the trees. And we're like, Oh, this is sweet. And then they like hit us. We're like, how are we going to get to this thing? Like it's in this big base and we have no idea. Like everything's so slick and grassy and steep. And we're just like, what are we going to do? So like we're walking down trying to find a way to get down into this basin. And I mean, it, it definitely crossed my mind where we were like, and my buddy Tyler's, we, we weren't talking at all, but we were like, until we were thinking the same thing, we're like, we might have to leave this deer and try to come back in the morning. Like if we don't have, like if you would have took one bad step, you had been sliding for like hundreds of feet and who knows where you would have stopped. And so luckily we worked into the trees and then we were able to find some deer trails through the actual, the trees. And that led us down into that basin. And then after that, we we're like, okay, this is pretty good. And then we're like, Oh, you know, kind of got a little more excited about the whole situation. And, uh, we walk up there and we find my deer and we're taking pictures. And then another deer pops out that other fork and horn, pops out and my buddy Tyler's like I'm gonna shoot it and I was like shoot it let's go like you know it's our first day up here why not shoot him so he shoots that there bring it down take pictures and we were already kind of talking about well maybe we're gonna have to spend the night over here because we didn't know if we could go back up in the dark and pick our you know the course we could that we came down and so we're like well maybe we'll spend the night and then we're like oh maybe not and then when we shot two bucks it was like we're definitely staying here because we have to take care of two deer 
and figure everything out. And so we shot the two deer and uh, luckily it, had, it we found enough dry wood enough to cook our backstrap. Um, and then that fire lasted long enough for that. And that was about it. And luckily I had a little packet of ramen in there and we used that seasoning from ramen and sprinkled it all over the backstrap. And that's how we ate it. Didn't definitely didn't taste the greatest, but we needed something to eat. And so we're like, all right, I mean, it's better than nothing. Glad at least we had some sort of like, I think it was chicken flavored seasoning. Ooh. So it wasn't even that like beef or anything. Yeah. Luckily, yeah, the fire lasted long enough for us to cook that. We filtered some water and then we were in the bottom of the base. And so I told Ty, I was like, well, I said, there's, we did, we don't see any bears above as we can see everything in the base. And I said, if the bears are going to come, they're going to come from down in the canyon. And because that's the thermals are going to switch and start blowing everything down the hill. So I was like, let's leave the deer down here. We hiked about a couple hundred yards up into the base and then just kind of, kind of rat hold underneath a tree and just sat there i mean we couldn't even lay down it was like it was so steep on that side so we just kind of huddled next to each other and like shivered and then we'd watch a movie and then we'd fall asleep and wake up cold and then we'd get warmed up and i think about an hour before the sun came up we're like okay we can't take it anymore we're gonna start start walking and moving around and snuck down there and the deer nothing had gotten into them so we loaded the deer up and picked our way back up back up to the ridge and then made our way back down to our camp and I was like, I was physically just drained, like didn't have anything to eat since that deer. And I was just exhausted. And I dropped my pack about uh, 150 yards from where our camp was and went down there and like ate as much food as we possibly could and like passed out for an hour and then hiked back up to get my pack. And then the rest of that day, we literally slept the entire day, just laid down on this little bench. We never even set up the tent or anything. We just laid down and slept for the whole day. And then the next morning we're like, we're, we're delaying the inevitable as much as possible. I had two deer tags, but we're like, there's no way we can pack out three deer. Like if we each have one boned out deer with all our gear, we were planning on staying up there for three, four days and we got it done quick, but we were so stressed about going back downhill because when we were going uphill, we were hiking up to the high country. You could stop and like look around and move left, right or different things. But going downhill, I mean, you take one bad step and you're going just tumbling down and there was a couple of rocky cliff faces we had to traverse down. And so we were very nervous about going down, but luckily it was actually better. I mean, you kind of wish you knew these things. Like now I would go back up there and do this hunt in a heartbeat just because we were able to stop and we could look down and we could look left, right, straight and pick out a better path than what we actually did going up mm. because when we were going up. All you could see is brush. So we just like bowled our way all the way through the brush and crap and steepness. So it was actually better going down. And then we stopped every 500 feet. We stopped, took our packs off, sat around for a half an hour and loaded our packs up. So we had all day to get back down to the beach. So we're like, we might as well just enjoy it and just relax. And so going down, it was actually not bad at all. And then uh, we actually changed our commercial flight since we were done. We were going to fly out and then we got stuck in weather up there and they couldn't get us out on our commercial flights. And then uh, we finally got out, but no, it was definitely an adventure. And that was the first time I'd ever been to Alaska. So definitely was uh, all I had hoped it was going to be. We shot our deer, started things off, hunted one day, shot a sick of black-tailed. That was the first species of the five to, to hunt. And I got it done in August, which is awesome just because everything else, October and November gets so busy with everything else. So now were you able to get all five species last year? Only thing I did not get was my Columbia blacktail. And so, yep. And we, and I could have shot a little like two point buck the very first day, 
I passed on it and then I probably should have shot it like hindsight. But the guy I was hunting with Josh over there, he told me like, when you hunt blacktail, you want like terrible weather. You want rain, wind, the worst weather you can think of because it pushes those deer out of the trees and into the clearings more. And the whole time we were hunting, it was like 70 degrees and hot. And so they were just staying in the trees where you couldn't spot them. And so it was, it was definitely a tough hunt. So my plan is I'm going to try to go down to California if I can shoot a Columbia blacktail before August uh, 18th, I can still shoot all the five deer species in a year. So it won't be a single season, but I can, I can still say I shot them all in a year. So, yeah, that was the only one that no, gave I, me the slip was Columbia blacktail. Now, talk to me about, because I haven't even looked into Cal, uh, California whatsoever from the standpoint of their uh, draw process or anything like that. How hard is it to get a Columbia uh, blacktail tag in, in California? A lot of Columbia blacktail tags are the same. They're just a general tag over the counter. Um, just have to figure out where to go. And that's what I've been talking to. Like any of the time, like when I was planning these hunts, I reached out to people that knew a lot more than I did on these deer species. Because before before last year, I'd only ever hunted mule deer and whitetail, I mean, a few times. And so I, I definitely reached out and talked to a lot of people and they helped me out a lot and on kind of what to look for. And yeah, so I, I got a guy down there. We're kind of been talking back and forth. So hopefully we'll be able to get a hunt planned up to go down there and shoot one in. Like their rifle season opens August 1st in some units. And then they have some archery seasons that open like July 5th down in California. Wow. So yeah. So That's I, cool. I had no idea. Yeah. So hopefully, I can, like I said, if I can get a shot before August 18th, I'll still shoot all the five deer species in a single year. That's incredible, man. I've never even uh, thought about that. Is there like a term for that slam? I've never even thought of that. Just a deer slam like or something. Deer sl- okay. Yeah, the yeah the deer slam, and I I honestly that was my goal. Like I wanted to get them all done in the same season because I don't think anyone has ever done it. I still don't know if anyone's ever done it in an actual calendar year. Um, but that was that was kind of the goal. But that the Columbia blacktail was the one that just gave me the slip, and that was the one I was least worried about because the guy I was going with the year before they had really good luck and shot a lot of blacktail, and like so I wasn't even worried at all. And that was the one that you know. Same same type of thing. Like, and then when I went to Arizona after that for coos deer, I shot one of the first decent bucks I could because I was like, I don't want to pass something up. Like, I passed up that Columbia blacktail, even though it was it was smaller than what I wanted for the project I was doing. Hindsight, I, I mean, I probably would have shot it. So, would you say that uh, that Columbia blacktail, since you that's the one you didn't kill, was that what you would say is the most difficult species that you hunted, or would you say that just happened because of the technicality? Which which one was the hardest one to get killed? I mean, definitely, I think the Columbia blacktail, um, from what I, I mean, it, it isn't, it isn't. You have some people that'll go over there and they drive the roads and they shoot bucks off the roads. And that's really easy. I think it's kind of like with any hunt, we could have went up to Sitka, uh, for Sitka blacktail and we could have hunted for our eight days and not shot bucks, but we shot them the first day. I shot my mule deer the first day. I shot my coos deer the first day. I shot my whitetail. It was like the second day that I actually hunted. Um, and then that Columbia blacktail, like I said, it was just the weather. I mean, they said we needed terrible weather and we had really good weather. And so I hunted them for three days and then on the left on a Sunday and the season closed the next Friday. So I drove all the way home 11 and a half hours, um, on that Sunday, took my son deer hunting that Monday. We went in and packed out elk camp Tuesday, Wednesday, and I drove all the, and then I drove all the way back over there 11 and a half hours to hunt the last day of season on that Friday, just in hopes to try to get one. And we ended up seeing like four does 
And then everyone we were driving around talking to, they're like, oh, yeah, I saw a pretty good fork and horn this morning, and I saw these deer. I mean, we were, we were hunting in where the deer were at. It was just one of those things where it just wasn't meant to be for me. And uh, like I said, these guys were seeing them all around us. We were doing everything the same thing they were doing, and they were seeing them. We weren't, and I mean, that's just the way it goes sometimes. That's why I guess what they always say. It's, it's called hunting, not killing, so. That's a fact. I mean, if it was that easy, I don't think it'd be near as much fun, man. I mean, that that little grind that you had at the end, the 11 and a half hours, taking your son out, the packing up elk camp, driving back, you know, I think some people may just hear that and be like, yeah, well, you're driving, did a little walking. But, I man, I'll tell you what, those hours on the road, number one, they add up. Packing out shit, that adds up. All that stuff adds up, man, I'm telling you. So, I know that was a grind going in there trying to get that one more day of hunting. Oh, yeah, it was definitely... I mean, I, I thought I had a good chance of getting one done. That's why I even did it in the first place. And, uh, yeah, like I said, just didn't pan out that year. And, like I said, I kind of just – you kind of got to roll with the punches. It's like that sick of blacktail hunt. We had a plane chartered. Everything was set. And then they, that all got canceled. And if hunting, if you're set and you don't like changing your plans, you need to find something else because I've been on so many hunts to where you have something planned. And then the next thing you know, it's like, oh, crap, this isn't going to work. What are we going to do? We got to go. We're going to drive 30 miles to the other side of the unit, or we're going to do this. And, yeah, it's it's definitely a grind sometimes. That's a great point you made. Uh, and I'm more so speaking towards guys out east that are planning on coming out west. Uh, just understand it's not going to be like going out on the back 40 and sitting at the same tree stand where you've been whacking whitetails for the past 30 years. Uh, you know, if you come out and try to do one of these western hunts, you need to have a plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, and J. Uh, because, oh, yeah. you know, there, there's all kind of variables, right, that come into play, whether that's, damn, there's 16 cars at this trailhead. Damn, there's, uh, I mean, for you, you know, if you were in eastern Idaho, damn, there's grizzlies all in here. Damn, there's wolves yeah. all in here. Uh, damn, it's it's dry. I'm not finding any uh, elk shit anywhere in my plan A spot. Well, if you don't have another plan, you're going to be sitting in town, you know, looking through your own eggs, trying to come up with a plan. I mean, coming out here is one of those things where you need to be prepared to change, like you said, and, and be a feather in the wind and be able to, uh, you know, if that animal isn't in your plan A, there's no sense in, in staying with plan A if they're not there. Oh, 100%. And like I said, that we've had that happen a lot on a lot of different hunts. Like the first Icon tour I did, we hunted four states in 16 days for mule deer, just one big road trip. And yeah, we definitely, we'd never been to any of these places before. And so we definitely, I mean, someday it took us about three days usually to find deer where we could actually hunt. And we just kept grinding on different places and did a lot of, we did a lot of driving. It was kind of funny on that, on that Colorado hunt. I shot that really big buck, my biggest buck down there. And guys were like, oh, you guys didn't work hard. You drove and blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, we drove until, until we found areas. It's like, we're not going to just go straight. You're not going to go kill yourself, hike in and not be, you know, you're going to save yourself a lot of time if you're driving around and you're glassing two miles away and see deer in there. At least you know there's deer in there. And so it's kind of funny. And then, like, and that's what I just tell them, like, man, if you don't like that style of hunt, the very next week we took the horses in 10 miles in the backcountry of Idaho and hunted with horses. It's like we, 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 we like to do a little bit of everything, and that's what we try to show people that you can do things, you know, in a roaded area, in a backcountry. You don't – there's such a stigma on backcountry hunting right now. Everyone wants to be a backcountry hunter. It's all backcountry. It's all that, you know, and it's like, man, I just like to hunt wherever I can get tags and learn the area. And I mean, backcountry is definitely my favorite just because I know normally I don't have to worry about as many people, 
But I, I hate that stigma that people give is like, man, you, if you didn't shoot that deer in the backcountry, then it's like they kind of degrade you a little bit just because you didn't hunt the backcountry. And it's like, man, good on you if that's all you do. But I just try to hunt wherever I can. I, I agree 100 percent. And that's another good point you brought up, you know, and it's super fun to go, you know, put your pack on your back and carry 90 pounds in there, set up a camp with the boys and all that and hang out. Okay, it's a hell of a time. Don't get me wrong. It's great. but. I've kind of changed the way I go about, uh, especially from the standpoint of elk. It used to be just, and I say it used to be like I've been doing this a long time. I just moved out here in 2019. But my point is, is now I'm more of base camp, hike in, and if they're not in there in a day, maybe a half day, depending on how much I can glass, I'm going to move to the next spot. Because if you commit to hiking in there five miles, then I feel like you, it could be a waste of time because if they're not back there, you're going to expend a lot of time, a lot of energy, uh, you know, exfiltrating that, getting your camp out, getting back to the truck and all that stuff. So for me, I've gone to more of a base camp. And then if from base camp, if I'm in there three, four, five miles and see a bunch of elk, okay, maybe I'll, when I get back to base camp the next day, bring in enough shit for a night or two. But, oh, yeah. you know, I don't, you know, moving forward, I don't know that I'm going to just go into a spot uh, you know, and, and stay seven, eight days, unless I know this is a prime area with a lot of game, because I've just found I have more success by having the base camp and, and being super mobile. Oh yeah. That's why they, that's, that's called hunting smarter. You know, it's like, there you why, go. Waste your, why waste your time hunting in a place where, you know, they might not be. And, and that might just be because they're one drainage over where you're not hunting. It's kind of like we're on our elk hunt last year. We we take the horses in there, set up a wall tent and all this stuff. So you're you're committed to being in there. And there was a few elk scattered around, but I mean they were they might have just been two drainages over, and we were sitting there for you know eight days, just waiting for them to come our direction. Where it's if we had the the chance, if we could have had a base camp somewhere and move and drove around, we definitely would have done that because we were just kind of wasting our time sitting there waiting for them to come. We could have drove over two canyons if there was roads there and got into them. So, I mean, there's definitely pros and cons of any of that kind of back country. If you're, if you're set on going to one particular place and it can be great or it can be a terrible time. So you definitely, like I said, changing plans and having to move and adjust is what I feel it's all about like Western hunting. I'll tell you what, and going back to what you said about there being like a stigma about backcountry hunting. So I was reading an article. I can't remember who it was by, but it was, he kind of has this theory and it's like a reverse pressure theory because now with the satellite messaging, you know, and the, uh, the satellite mapping systems, people have a lot more confidence than back in the day reading a paper map, you know, to, to go in there eight miles because they can just look at their track and follow that track back out. Right. So what the guy was saying was a lot of those elk and, and other game animals, they're finding these hell holes a little bit close to these roads because people are walking past them just for the sheer fact of wanting to be back in the back country. And I think people think that. Once you get past that eight mile, 10 mile uh, distance that there's just going to be shit crawling on every mountainside. You know what I mean? And maybe sometimes that's the case, you know, and you have a lot more backcountry experience than me. I would imagine that that's not always the case just because you're back there eight, 10 miles. No, you. I mean, that guy's hundred percent right. I mean, there's a lot of little, little spots and little pockets that people are walking right by. 
and they're not even looking up there because they're so focused on getting so far back in there. And we did an elk hunt in 2021. We'd never been to this area. We're like, let's just try it. It was in September. It was a rifle hunt in September. We took the horses in 15 miles back into it's the Frank Church Wilderness area here in Idaho. Ooh. Absolutely just brutal country. And we get back in there and we saw four cows and we had one bull bugling. And he was, we were 15 miles in on horses. We had spiked out from our base camp, like six miles up over the opposite direction. And we had this bull bugling and it was like 80 degrees. And we're like, we can't even go shoot that elk because if we would have went down there and shot it, he would have rotted by the time we would have got him back to base camp and then to load him up to go back to the horses. Like I said, people think, oh, you're 15 miles in the back country. Like, like what you said, there should be deer and elk on every hillside. And we saw one mule deer buck and four cows and four. Days. And this is in the Frank church. This is like one of the most, the last huge desolate piece of land in the lower 48. I mean, it is, it's oh, about yeah. as back country as you can get. Yeah. And it, there, sh I mean, there should have been deer and elk everywhere, but yeah, the, the wolves had just pushed them out. And you could tell back in the day, I've, I heard stories of that area and they would shoot all sorts of elk, big bulls and big bucks. And you, I mean, you would get away from people, but now, like I said, just because it's farther doesn't mean, mean it's better. I had some of the best archery elk hunts I ever had. I we packed into Hell's Canyon and then we did a backpack trip in there. And then the next week we can't, we hunted a little closer to where like I grew up where we camped in a camper and we drove the truck and we parked and parked the truck and got out and there's bulls screaming all around us, had elk run within 50 yards of us on a road. And it's like, you know, the week before I went in 10 miles backpacking and saw a few elk, but nothing like I saw, you know, standing on the road. Right. hundred percent. And uh, so going on to what you're saying about the elk being in the road, actually, you know, what? before we get into elk, I want to talk about, you touched on that you went in, got you a coos down in Arizona. What all went into that? I heard you say that you put in for the tag in June. So that, that means it was a limited coos because can't the, the OTC tags, they become available in what, January, something like that? Yeah. If you want to hunt archery, you can do over the counter. We try to do everything. With, I mean, I try to hunt everything with a rifle because we do a lot of stuff with Sig Sauer. And so we use that cross um, for as many hunts as we can. And so we wanted to do a rifle hunt and it's a, yeah, the unit we put in for is, I mean, it takes a, I can't remember two, three points, something like that, um, to put in for. So we'd been putting in for it and, uh, we drew that tag, Jim, my other switchback guy, my main switchback guy, he had hunted in there a couple of years prior and they've done really well in there. So I was lucky enough. They invited me to come in there with them. And it was another back backpack hunt. We had eight days worth of gear, um, the end of November packed in there. And, uh, I think we're about four, four and a half miles. And it's just, it was one of those spots, like, it was a really good spot. And, and luckily Jim and Lex, they knew it. We used to, we were finding koozie right off the bat. Like, cause I had heard the horror stories of like sitting and glassing for hours and hours and hours. Yep. And we hunted them just like we would mule deer. I mean, the, the koozie were coming out on the open hillsides at, in the morning into the night. And then, so if we spotted them, like the very first night we got in there, Jim shot a really like 95 inch buck, which is really big for koozie deer. That's a good he shot it. Yeah, he shot it, and then he lost it at last light. It kicked and went out of sight, and we didn't want to go in there and blow it out just in case, you know, something. So we waited till the next morning. We went back in there, and uh, we actually spotted the deer that I ended up shooting. So I shot it, and then we glassed down and found Jim's bucks. We took two bucks out of that one basin and within, I mean, less than 24 hours of actually hunting down there. And then we hunted a little longer for the next couple of days to try to find Lex a big one, but... I mean, it was, it was an awesome place just to be able to, 
I mean, we, like I said, we hunted them just like mule deer. There was, they, they were there in the morning, like the one Lex ended up shooting, Jim spotted it that morning. We went down in there and got set up that afternoon, and Lex shot it that evening in the same hillside. So it was pretty crazy, and the country down there is absolutely amazing. Any rattlesnakes? We didn't see any rattlesnakes. Then they said they'd never seen any rattlesnakes, which I was really happy about. We did see a really big black bear, though, which I was shocked at. We were we were stalking into where Lex shot his, and it was a big black bear. I was like, holy crap, I'd shoot that thing in Idaho and just out there in the <laughs> desert. <laughs> Apparently, they have really good uh, black bear hunting in AC. I was just reading about that. That blows my mind. Yeah, like I would have never guessed, especially where we were at. I would have never guessed seeing a black bear down there. What about uh... – we were talking about uh, the Sitka blacktail hunt. Have you heard of Jim Batestail? Uh, yeah. Didn't he? Uh, didn't uh, Randy Newberg hunt with him? Dude, so if, if you ever want to nerd out on the blacktail stuff, that dude, and as you saw, that's where I found about him was on, on Randy's show. Uh, that dude kills everything with a Hawkins. Yeah. Old school, loose powder, round ball, like, and, and he goes up and kills these huge blacktails. He, uh, he actually found a deadhead. I was watching this episode the other day, and I want to say it would have been the number one blacktail in the world, I believe. Or it is the number one blacktail. It's just a, he kills these giants. And just like you said, and this dude's got to be in his late 60s. I mean, it yeah. looks like some of the most steep. And it's not far, but, I mean, it's steeper than the backside of hell. And like you said, uh, you know, Alaska's a rainforest, you know. So if it gets to rain and, and you're going up or down, and I'll tell you what, for me, I don't know about you, but going down is worse for me on my knees, especially with a heavy pack. I'd rather go up. Yeah. No, nope, I agree with that. Like I said, you, you can kind of stop your momentum. Going downhill, something, you're just – and you don't get tired going downhill, so you push harder. And so you're just – I mean, you're just beating your body up, and you'll go for an hour. Like when you're going uphill, you got to stop every, you know, 50 yards sometimes, and you'll stop and take a breather and let your legs, you know, get caught back up. But going downhill, you're like, oh, I don't feel bad, so I'll just keep going and keep going. And then you reach the bottom, and you're like, holy crap, what did I just do? Yeah, no kidding. So when you were out there in Alaska, did y'all get to do any fishing, or was it just kind of you know sticking to the schedule, get the blacktail, get out of there? Yeah, it was all just hunting. Um, I, my wife wished we would have fished because she loves eating like halibut and salmon and all that kind of stuff. But to me, I could have bought another coot, or I could have bought another Sitka blacktail tag for the price it would have cost to go fishing. And I'd much rather oh, go sure. another. I'd rather much rather go hunt another Sitka blacktail than to fish for one day. Um, yeah, we we definitely probably showed up just because we were there and we had the time and we tagged out so quick. Uh, but yeah, we just we just hunted the whole time. Nothing wrong with that, man. So let's go ahead and uh, let's transition into elk because since I moved out here, man, that species and I've been fortunate enough. Uh, you know, I've been able to lay about everything down, but. Uh, a black bear out here from the standpoint of everything but moose, goat, and sheep. Only reason I say that is, man, the elk just, I love it. Every year about May, I'm like, it's elk, it's elk, it's elk, it's elk. And, and I don't know if it's because they're so big or it's because how you can hunt them and how vocal it is, but damn, I love chasing elk. And I was watching your video. Uh, I want to say it was, it was either 22, 21. It was the helicopter bull, that stud you shot, man. I, I want to hear about that story, man. The, the, oh, yeah. When you had the, yeah. Right there. Right over my shoulder. Oh, okay. Back there. <laughs> That's it. No, that was, and, and I'm not a great elk hunter. I'm always like the first to admit it. Like to people are like, what's your thing? Like I love mule deer hunting. Elk have always been the one animal. Like I've always had them close, like archery hunting and 
I just do things wrong, I guess. And I, I mean, they, I struggled with elk for a long time and still do, honestly. Like they're, they're like my Achilles heel of hunting, I feel like. But I got lucky with that bull. I mean, it was, it was, that was a hard fought hunt too. We, uh, we went in and cleared trail for two and a half days to get back into this area and uh, set up our camp down in there. Normally my dad comes in and he has the horses and everything, but he got sick and so he couldn't come. And so I had to drive down to his house, get horses, mules, go in there. We had to trail the horses like 10 miles behind the pickups because we couldn't get the trailer in where we wanted to. And then we had to pack into camp. And it was, it was in the middle of October. We just had a freak snowstorm that came in and uh, got down in there. And that first day, not a lot of elk. Actually, we'd seen a lot of elk, you know, across big drainages, but nothing. Like It's in that same place where I was talking about where we hunted eight days this year. Like you have to be you're stuck once you're back in there. The elk have to kind of move to you. You, I mean, as much as you would like to go across some of these drainages, it's just physically impossible to get across them and actually get an elk out. And so our opening day, you know, we didn't, we didn't, we saw some nice bulls, but we couldn't get to them. There's a few cows on our ridge. And we even said in the video, like, you know, we could do that hunt tomorrow and it could be totally different. And we walked out there that next morning to our same little glassing spot. And all of a sudden we see spotted like a little raghorn way down the ridge. And then I hear a bull bugle and I look down and I spot that bull I ended up killing. And he's working his way up the ridge towards us. And he's just bugling and he's got some cows with him. And he's about 900 yards and it's in some just nasty, rugged country. And so we're getting closer. Um, well, he kind of gets out of view and he kind of gets on this little knob. And so we, we're kind of sneaking down in there. And then we see him at like 500 yards and he's standing there right on this knob. And we're just like, oh, crap, you know. We've been, we've been shooting the uh, the Sig Cross, and right now you've only got a 308 and a 65 Creedmoor and a 277 Sig Fury. But right at that time, I had a 308, so we really wanted to get it down to that. We're like, well, I'm not going to shoot at a big bull elk like that at 500 yards with a 308 in that country, especially. And so it, it actually ended up being a really cool experience because of that. Because normally, when I was shooting a bigger rifle, I would have set up right there at 500 yards and shot it. So since we couldn't do that, we kind of figured where we they we thought they were going and uh we snuck down the main ridge and then peeked over the top and that bull was bedded down at 136 yards just had no clue we were there we're sitting there this cows are bedded all around him i couldn't get a shot where i was so we literally just sat there and waited and just i mean luckily the thermals were coming up the hill we had all the time in the world and i was like man as soon as this bull stands up we're gonna shoot him and jim he was there with me and he was running camera and he was like, do you want me to come down there and get closer and sit? I was like, dude, I don't really care about video at this point. I'm like, this is the biggest bull I've ever had a chance to hunt. I was like, do the best you can. Like, I don't care. Just do the best you can. And we're sitting there for about two hours. And all of a sudden, like a helicopter comes over the ridge and not like, like chasing anything, but just was going somewhere, came over to the ridge and that bull stood up and I just slid, slid up on my knee, put one right behind the shoulder and then I shot him like five times. I mean, he was still standing when I was shooting him. And I was just like, I'm not. I mean, he was on this little kind of finger ridge, and it was just like a cow's face straight down on each side. So he went down a couple times, and he stood back up, and I'd shoot him again. And they, he was just a, a brute of a bull. And uh, I was just like, that's what I told Jim. And I didn't have time to put my, my earplugs in. And man, my ears are ringing so bad. And I was just because I rang off those shots. I mean, Jim's like, dude, I would have thought you were shooting a semi-automatic rifle as fast as you were shooting. I was like, dude, I did not want that thing getting anywhere. 
And uh, it was a pretty cool experience. I definitely wish my dad would have been in there with me just because, you know, we've been doing all those backcountry hunts together. But it was like I said, we were talking about the satellite communicating. It was cool to be able to send him a message, you know, big bull down and all that kind of stuff. And uh, but then after that, like like saying all my hunts, the real work began. And we're, you know, how many miles back in there on the horses? And then we're past where the horses are. Um, Luckily, we had already been in there and cleared trail down pretty close to there. And so what we did is we just went down there, quartered them up, got them up to a tree, hung them up, hiked back to camp, and then uh, went back down there with the horse and the mule the next day and then packed them all the way out. But, yeah, it was a definitely cool experience. He scored right at, like, was like 348 is what he zinked out at. His mass was the biggest thing. But that's just, I mean, that's just a general, general, you know, tag, you know, so it doesn't get much better than that. Nah, no so, kidding. That's, that's incredible. So now so I, what, you know, uh, now, now I can say, yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big time elk hunter because I shot one big bull. So, you know, that's it. That's it. I'm done. It's like, you got the skunk like the out of the boat. That's the mic drop. And I'm like, I don't really like, like this year I could have cared less to shoot an elk. I was, I'm still happy with that bull. And yeah, I mean, I was more, more trying to get my dad and my son and I'd take other people to get elk. I was like, I don't even care if I don't shoot an elk for another couple of years. If I could shoot an elk like that every three, four I mean, that bull took me 20 years. So, I mean, if I can wait five years, I can. that's better than 20. I'll tell you what, there's going to be a lot of elk hunters that never kill an elk that big. That's a stud of a bull, man. That's something to be proud yeah. of for sure. No, I was so sure. Like, I, didn't really, I didn't care about the score, but it's still pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's awesome. So tell me about, you mentioned you, uh, you hunt archery as well. What are kind of your strategies uh, from the standpoint of are you a caller? Are you a climb up high in glass? You know, how early are you getting in and getting trail cameras up? Kind of what's your strategy going into to archery hunting elk? You know, I haven't archery elk hunted for the last three years just because we've been focusing on the SIG stuff. Um, but before that, it was definitely we were hunting the thicker country, so we were relying a lot on calls, which I would – I've never archery elk hunted where you could like in the sagebrush where you can glass them. I would rather do that because it's kind of more like mule deer hunting, kind of like this big bull I shot. I mean, we were glassing. We weren't like in the, the, the thick timber because I hate, there's nothing more I hate more than when you get in there and you call a bull into 20 yards and you can see his, his rack and his antlers and his heads and you can't get a shot. It's like the most frustrating thing. So yeah, this year I probably will archery all cut this year. I'll probably get an archery tag and a, and a rifle tag. But I'm going to focus more on open country to where I can actually sit in glass and then make a move on them versus the thick stuff. Or even if there is some timber pockets, at least you can see them and glass them. Because like what we were talking about before, if you're hiking blind in for an area for deer, I mean, you could be up there. If the elk aren't talking, you could be walking around in some of this thick country where I live all day and you might not have been within five miles of an elk and you're just, you know, just hiking. And so at least if you could glass a little bit you can at least get eyes on them and then they go then they go bed up in the timber then you can move in and get close and rile them up and get them to come in but yeah i'm probably the i'm probably the worst person to ask advice on archery elk hunting so take it take it so for, what, what for what it is <laughs> what about the uh, pressure so is there a particular season is it archery would it be rifle that you see the most people in the woods is is it ever really that pressured what how bad is it out there it gets pretty bad. I mean, definitely like general rifle hunts are the worst just because everyone and their dog goes out and rifle, rifle hunts. You know, archery, you have to be a little more committed to the craft and, you know, you shoot most, I mean, you hope most people are out there shooting. Um, 
their bow all the time. We, we would like to kind of bridge that gap too, between like rifle hunting too. Like we, if we could teach more people to shoot their rifles more and to be better capable with that rifle, it'd be so much better than most people I know. They go out like a week before season, like to shoot around. Oh yeah. I hit a paper plate at a hundred yards. I'm good to go. And so that's, that's where we, where that pressure comes in because anyone that goes out and does that can go buy a tag here. If you're a local for 32 bucks and go chase elk with a rifle that hits a paper plate at a hundred yards. And so you get everyone and their dog out there, which is cool. I mean, it's always like that, that flips out. Like it's cool. You see people out hunting. You like to see the hunting is still a tradition and a heritage and all this stuff. But on the flip side, you're almost like, man, I wish you would take a little more time and prepare yourself a little better. And, and a lot of times you'll get screwed up by other hunters that they'll be, they'll be going through a place where they just don't have a clue what they're doing and they'll be pushing stuff in and out of the area. And if you're like, man, if you would just sit up on this, this ridge and glass, you would know they're there instead of just walking through it. But that's the way, but that's, that's the way I used to hunt too. Like we used to get on our horses and we'd just ride. We'd ride until we saw an animal jump off and try to shoot them. And I told my, I tell my dad that all the time. Like, imagine if we knew what we knew now and had the optics like we had mm. now. And if we rode the horses up to these ridges and sat in glass, how much more effective we would have been than just bumping and jumping off and trying to shoot as fast as we could. But right. like I said, it's just, it's just a learning curve. That's a great point. And you also brought up something else, you know, People hate on guys that take those long shots, those 500-yard shots. But I think it goes down to just like when people see somebody shoot a bow 100 yards. It's like, well, if you got a guy that's been practicing, you know, day in and day out, week in, week out, whatever it may be, 100 yards is, is a feasible shot if, if you've been doing it. You know, it's not, you know, it's not ridiculous to shoot at 100 yards. And the same thing for guys that shoot their rifle. You know, 500 yards is relatively doable for somebody that practices with their rifle. So. You know, you, people get a lot of hate on, oh, you shot that deer at 400 yards. You should have got closer. Sometimes you can't get closer, and that's just what it yeah. is. Oh, 100%. And, no, we, we definitely ran into that. We, we, I mean, we, we'll get that. The farthest animal I've ever shot was 650 yards. I shot a mule deer across the big drainage. And, but like you said, if I would have missed, people would have well, you shouldn't be shooting that far. But, like I said, I've seen people miss deer at 100 yards with a rifle or 70 yards with a rifle. I've done I've seen it. guys – I, I've seen I've seen guys miss bears on a bait at 50 yards with a rifle, and it's like see, it's, so it's like man, it's all of what people are capable of, and if and if you're comfortable shooting out there, and you know, like I said, that's basically if you're comfortable and you're confident, then yeah, you you owe it to the animals to get as close as you can. But sometimes, like I said, 400 yards is as close as you can get, and if you're a capable shooter and you've been practicing at 800 and a thousand yards, a 400 yard shot's like a chip shot, kind of the same with archery. You practice out to 150 yards, you're going to notice all your little bad habits. Then you get a four, a 40 yard shot, and you're like, man, this is easy. So, like I said, it all comes down to people practicing. But like I said, the bad thing with rifle hunting, I feel, is most people go out there and shoot their rifle that they've had for 30 years. They shoot it one time and it hits a paper plate, and they're like, okay, I'm good to go. So, then where I would be yep. like at 100 yards, I want all my bullets touching. <laughs> Right. hundred percent. And especially like you were talking about with the way that technology has come along, you know, you're not shooting your daddy's 30, 30 Marlin anymore. You know, I mean, it's the, the capability of these weapons are probably more capable than we as humans would be able to even, you know, exhibit, you know, I'll tell you what, another video I watched a year's man, it was super, super interesting. It looked like a grinder of a hunt because one thing I figured out this year, man, I don't like a bunch of snow, man. I'm sure, you know, I get it. You can see and all that, the animals stick out. But post-holing is not fun. 
It's not fun. No. And, uh, you know, I watched your hunt. Uh, you and a buddy went in, uh, backpacked in for, for a wolf hunt, and that looked incredible, man. So what all went into that? And, and as far as strategy, what took you to that particular spot to camp out and, and glass? Was it just the fact that you knew the deer were in there and the elk are going to be following the deer and the, or excuse me, the wolves are going to be following the deer? Like what, what led you to that spot and what all went into that wolf hunt? Yeah, that area is just a pretty well-known area where the wolves like to hang out through the wintertime. It's where the elk winter, um, you can access it pretty easy. You can drive down in there pretty easy and then kind of move from there. That was another kind of learning curve with the wolf hunt. You know, we backpacked into this ridge where we thought they were going to be and then set up and we thought we'd be right in the middle of them. But if the wolves aren't there, then we were just wasting our time to come to find out, you know. It was a cool experience to get back in there. And we had, the, you know, like a fire sawtooth with the stove and froze our butts off even with the stove all night. It was January in Idaho, like got down to zero degrees. Um, and then we, we ended up hiking out. We only spent one night in there. And then we ended up just driving the rest of the time trying to find the elk. Because wherever, like, like what you said, wherever the elk are is where the wolves are going to be. But yeah, that was kind of just the last minute. A lot of our hunts we do are just kind of like last minute, like, throw your hat in the wind like okay let's go do it for let's go wolf hunt for three days um and we'd probably be more successful if we put, planned a little more but it's still just i mean the experiences you get going in there um but wolves are crazy hard to hunt i've 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 had opportunities of wolves i could have shot a lot of wolves before they became legal to hunt but now like i haven't i've never even shot at one so they're they're a hard animal to hunt and i think if i put some time into it i could probably get more effective at it i just haven't put the time into it that's what everybody says. Wolf is a very, very difficult animal to get killed. Uh, in Idaho, can you use an e-collar or no? Yeah, in Idaho, you can. I mean, they made it now. You can shoot them with thermals. So you can go out there. Oh, wow. And, yeah, you can go out at night and shoot them with a thermal. So, yeah, they've kind of they've kind of opened things up as far as wolves go just because there, there's getting to be so many wolves. They, they, they need to be, you know, definitely kept in check. Right. And now, uh, you know, here in Colorado, I, I believe in – you know, other people say they haven't been here, but there's not like there's an electric fence on the northern border with, with Wyoming. We, we've had wolves here, but now we're looking to uh, put more in. And I'm not going to get into the political side of this, but I just hope that, you know, we've got a great plan in place because I've just heard the stories of Idaho, Montana, places like that. And the havoc that those things wreak, especially on, you know, those farmers, man, not to mention the the, the wildlife that we're trying to go get after but those farmers they have a rough time with those things man oh yeah it's and it was definitely different 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 parts of idaho got hit a lot harder um yeah they it definitely wasn't a good call to bring them back in i love i think wolves are a really cool animal but they definitely brought in different a different kind of wolf than was here originally and they multiplied a lot faster than they were thinking and yeah, they're like anything. They, they need to be managed. There was a reason, I think, that they tried to take them all out in the first place. Um, and then, you know, you leave it to man to try to make things better by making things worse sometimes. Yeah, that's a great point. That is a great point. So I'll tell you what, I want to transition into uh, this badass knife that you are putting together with Taito, a company that I actually partnered with. Luke and those guys, they do a great job and make a great product. Talk a little bit about the heritage knife you got coming out. Yeah, so we actually just launched this last Friday on Taito's website. I reached out to Luke in January, and I was like, hey, would you be interested in collabing and building a knife with us? And uh, and he was like, he was all for it, which I was really excited about because I didn't know, you know, like I had an idea what I wanted, but he's definitely put in a lot more work 
as far as that goes than, than I have. Like I send him ideas, he sketched things up. Yeah, let's do this, let's tweak this, let's do this type of deal. I was, I mean, he's definitely had to actually produce them. But yeah, my whole thought process on that was I, I, I've been looking for the last few years of trying to find a knife that I could pass down to my kids. Like I'm a very sentimental person. I love having things that like my dad had. Um, and so I wanted to have something that I could pass down to my kids. And I've been using like the title TI, the titanium handle replacement blade knife for the last like five years, which is an awesome knife, but I wanted something a little more robust, I guess you could pass down and an actual knife, a fixed blade knife. And so we came out with the heritage knife. It's an awesome blade. I mean, it's six and a half inches overall. I wanted to do like the actual stainless steel finish on it. Um, so it's a nitro V stainless steel blade. We put the G10 textured G10 uh, handle on it. And I used it all this spring. I, he sent me some prototypes and uh, I was able to use it on the bear hunts and break down a bear. And like my son's bear, I was able to, to skin it, quarter it and cape out its head without having to sharpen it. So Luke definitely knocked it out of the park. I mean, everyone I show that knife to, they're all just like, yeah, that, that thing is a sweet knife. And like I said, my, my whole thing was just, I wanted to have something that I could pass down to my kids. And now I've got my own signature blade with, with Taito. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. No, that is badass, And I'm excited to get my hands on one, man. Cause you know, just based off the looks, that is a clean looking knife and I'm sure it gets the job done. I'm fired up to get my hands on one, but, uh, I'll tell you what, what do you got coming up this year, man? Any cool, cool hunts coming up? Any new stuff? You know, besides the California Columbia blacktail hunt, that'll be in August. Um, other than that, I'm just kind of waiting to see what the results happen here in Idaho. Cause I got my boys in for hunts. And so depending on what they draw, we kind of change things around. Hopefully we'll go back to Arizona, um, for coos deer, probably have to go in a different unit. Um, yeah, I, I thought I was going to get my Wyoming general elk tag. Didn't get it because the the point creep. And then, uh, yeah, Montana I didn't draw. Utah I didn't draw. So, yeah, I'm just kind of stuck with waiting for uh, to see what Idaho holds. I'll tell you what, man. Uh, if you ever want to get down for OTC elk here, man, you're welcome by my campfire anytime, man. I'll tell you what. One thing that uh, I do know is going to happen this year with the amount of and I think you guys experienced it as well. We had a terrible winter this year, especially towards uh, over in the Western Slope. And they cut a lot of tags out this year. So I'm expecting to see a lot of uh, pressure in the OTC units this year. Uh, fortunately, I was able to draw a muzzleloader tag. But unfortunately, it's in an OTC area. And it's going to be in the middle of, you know, there's still going to be archery hunters out there. So I'm still going to experience it. But yeah. still fired up for it. Uh, you know, it's this, the summer's. You know, it's upon us and falls right here. Spring flew by, turkey season came and went. Uh, so now it's on to, to the hooved animals, and I'm fired up for it, man. Uh, but I'll tell you what, I took a lot of your time, and I really appreciate you coming on, Ross. Uh, you know, where can, where can everybody find you? If you don't know Ross, where can everybody find you, man? On Instagram, it's just Switchback Outdoors. And then our main deal, YouTube, is kind of what I push everything towards, just uh, Switchback Outdoors TV. And, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a, a game for sure trying to figure out the whole YouTube deal, but it's been, it's been fun. Kind of like what I talked about the sentimental side of things. I started videoing hunts just so I could remember them and with my kids coming up. And so every, t every hunt my kids ever been on has been videoed. And so that's, that was kind of a cool thing. They'll be able to go back and rewatch and relive all those memories. And, uh, who would have guessed it would actually develop into an actual business, but pretty happy that it has. No, it's, it's awesome, man. And, so speaking of that real quick, what are some of the things that, uh, you know, some of the 
issues you run into with filming? Have you ever had a hunt that just gets blown due to trying to get it on film? Like, what all the extra do you have to pack in for that from the standpoint of filming your hunt? Oh, yeah, there's definitely a lot more that goes into it. You mean, kind of like that big bull that I shot. Jim did a pretty good job getting what he could on there, but if I would have been cared more about video, I might not have shot that elk. Um, and I'm, I, it all depends on the hunt. If there's certain hunts, I'm like, Hey, don't shoot unless we can get it on video. And there's hunts where it's like a bull like that on a over the counter tag. You're not going to mess around and not, Oh, hold on. It's not quite in frame. Um, so yeah, but definitely, I mean, I pack my camera on a tripod and I pack it in my hand a hundred percent of the time I used to, you know, pack it in my backpack or on my shoulder strap. And I just ended up packing on the tripod cause I use it a lot more try to capture as much as I can get as much B roll as I can. But yeah, you're, you're definitely packing in a lot more gear, your batteries, um, lens, more lens cleaners, different lenses, different mics. I mean, it's, it adds a whole lot to it, but I'm always happy that I have, because especially if I'm not the one hunting and I just have to focus on videoing, it's even better. Cause it's just, it's, I mean, it's the next best thing to actually pull on the trigger is if I can get an actual good kill shot on video and, and be able to show the whole hunt to to everyone and they, the adventures that we get to experience i mean we get you and i get to experience a lot of the more cool stuff than most people will ever get to experience so if i can show people that and a lot of our subscribers from back east and everything like that so it's 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 definitely a cool experience to be able to show that and share that with everyone oh 100 and now you know that i'm getting into the western game and i see the the difficulties that you face even without having a camera you know it's a lot to be said getting a kill shot on, on camera up there on the side of a mountain. I mean, I got a lot of respect to you guys that, uh, that do it. And, you know, I may step into that field at some point, but, uh, it's something to be said about getting a shot on camera, man. It really is. Yeah. And that, and the flip side of that too, is sometimes it takes away a little bit. If, I mean, I've had instances where we don't get the kill shot, you know, like if someone forgets to hit record, I've about forgot to hit record. And sometimes that takes away from it, which really sucks because, it shouldn't take away from that hunt just because you didn't get the kill shot. And so that's one time I've, I finally just kind of gotten over it. But I mean, I always double check or triple check now, but there's a couple of times where we didn't get it. And that's just like, Oh man, that sucks. And you'd be kind of down on yourself. And you're like, this is dumb. Like if we weren't trying to video, we'd be so excited right now. But since we didn't get that, that one little point of the video, it's like, Oh, it's a failure. And some people like to just see the the whole experience. They don't care if you get a kill shot or not. We've had some yep. videos do it really, really well, and we'd never even shot at an animal. And then we have other videos where we shoot a lot of animals, and it doesn't do as well. Like, YouTube's the hardest thing to figure out. It's like, if I could figure out the algorithm, man, man, it would be awesome. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's a cool point you brought up because I think a lot of people are starting, and I don't know if it was because people are wanting to get in the woods after COVID or whatever it may be, but I find that people seem to be more intrigued by the process more so than anything, man. Seeing guys go in, getting their coffee at the gas station, shooting the shit in the truck, you know, getting to the trailhead and, you know, the climbing, all the funny shit, you know, more so than the super serious interviews and all that stuff. I think people are, are starting to gravitate towards the real shit, you know, the process. Because that's the part I love the most, man, is the process. The Not only the process of the hunt, but the logistics that take place beforehand and that's why I find myself, I don't do guided hunts. I'm not saying I won't do one, you know, especially for like a, a dog sheep or stuff where you need it. But for me, I get the enjoyment out of the test. The test being knowing how to get the tag, when to put in for the tag, knowing where the animals you think they're going to be, uh, having all your gear, your gear being on. 
that to me is the attraction to hunting is going out and doing it myself. Otherwise, I just don't, I don't get a lot out of it if I just go somewhere and somebody's holding my hand. And again, I'm not hating on God and hunting, but I just, I just don't get as much out of it if I wasn't the one doing the, at least part of the work. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. And it's like, I mean, I've had, I've, I've shot smaller deer on backcountry hunts that I'm more proud of than a big deer that I might've shot, you know, off a road or, you know, spotted it from a road and shot it off the road. But, you know, I've, I just had a lot more pride in something that took a lot more work and it might be a smaller animal and people are like, well, how can you have that mounted? Well, I shot that one nine miles in with my bow first time I ever hunted high country mule deer versus I, I shot that mule deer. It was on a controlled tag to where we were driving around on a four wheeler and spotted it and walked a hundred yards and shot it. It's like, it's all kind of what, what you're looking for in the experience. And that's the cool thing with Western hunting. I think is you can, you can do it however you want. As long as you get out and do it, you can, you can drive around in glass, you can backpack, you can do any, any kind of experience you're looking for. I mean, Western hunting uh, definitely offers that. Yep, I agree 100%, man. This Western game, it, it teaches you, and it's a cliche, but uh, it's, it's some saying, something about the mountains will provide, something about, uh, you know, you find yourself in, in the mountains. And, and I, I'll speak to an experience I had this year. So I spiked in for the first time alone for five nights, and I literally did not say a word for five days. No cell service. All I had was my inReach. And so my whole purpose in life for those five days was to find help. And it was, I don't know, man, it was almost surreal because, okay, put it to you like this. Some people, you know, especially anti-hunters, when a hunter makes the argument about, yeah, you know, the places it takes you, it's incredible. And, you know, an anti-hunter would say, why don't you just go hike it? It's like, listen, you're not going to see that that place in the same way if you're just walking on a trail as when you're walking, you're, uh, uh, you know, you're off trail and you're scanning, you know, and you're looking for animals the whole way. You just don't experience it the same way as if you're on a beaten down walking trail. It's just different. No, oh, 100%. Yeah. Those people will never see the same type of backcountry we get to see when you just get one ridge over from the trail. It's a whole different world for sure. It's a whole different world for sure, man. Well, I got two more questions for you to end it. These are going to be two great questions. It's going to, it's going to make you think. So if you got one species to hunt for the rest of your life, this is all you can hunt. In one place, what are you doing? Uh, species definitely mule deer. I, I love mule deer hunting. Um, in a place, like how general are we talking? Like state? State. I, I, state. I, know, mule, I know mule deer. Yep. Yeah, it's just what I grew up doing. I, I mean, know mule yeah. deer. I mean, I guess if I could doll sheep, I mean, that would be a different story. Just for the experience. But yeah, mule deers, I love hunting mule deer. It's so much fun. And the, the different terrain you can hunt mule deer and from the high country to the desert to everywhere in between i i love hunting mule deer okay idaho mule deer so last question you got one hunt one species anywhere in the world fully funded what species do you want i think go stone sheep i mean yeah i love stone I mean, sheep. sheep's definitely like something i want i would say doll sheep just because it's the more attainable of stone sheep, but if it's already pay, getting paid for, man, I'd go. I'd go for the the stone sheep. Just, just, I mean, might be the only sheep I'd ever hunt. I some of those other hunts over in like Tajikistan and all that. I mean, there's some the Marco Polo. Those are awesome, but Marco. Yeah, there's so many cool things. That's a tough one, but I think stone sheep. Yeah, yeah that man. would be that would be a really cool hunt. Just to just to get experience where they live. Stone sheep. Well, there you have it, Ross Sevy. He's got. 
The Idaho mule deer for his one and only species and stone sheep for the one species fully funded. I love it. I think I'd probably go probably, and I haven't been up there, but from what I heard, Wyoming is just outstanding hunting. And I, I mean, the cat's already out of the bag. It's not like I'm informing anybody on this, but I think if I got to go one species forever, it might be Wyoming elk. I'm, I'm thinking. And then, uh, and then like you said, yeah. uh, the crazy Tajikistan, you know, I, I would love to get, Either a markour or even a uh, what do they call them? Uh, Persian ibex. Those things are cool, man. I'd like to get a Persian ibex. No, I yeah, those are really cool. Be... Yeah, no, nope, I, I I I I can flip <laughs> for those too. It's like, man, luckily, 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 we don't have. I mean, we don't have to choose one species, one thing. I wish we could go do our dream hunt, of course, but. Yeah, luckily we don't have to choose just one animal in one state for the rest of our life. We get that. We have a lot of different opportunities. That's a fact. Well, Ross, man, I really appreciate your time, man. I know everybody's going to love this one. And, again, y'all go check out Switchback Outdoors. They got some incredible video on YouTube. I mean, it's it's awesome video, Western hunting, uh, all the species. Go check them out on IG. He's always posting cool stuff. And, uh, you know, before we hop off here, man, I'd be doing myself a disservice. I'd be doing these companies a disservice. I'm very thankful for these guys. And, again, like I always say, I'm not just saying this shit because I'm working with them. All these products will help you out in the field, whether it's killing more stuff or whether it's making you more comfortable going out and, and eating tags, man. And those companies are King's Camo, Vortex Optics, Kafaru Backpacks, Tidal Knives, Crispy Boots. I mean, the list goes on and on. Tacticam, very appreciative of those guys. And very happy to work with him. And again, Ross, I appreciate you hopping on, man. It was very fun shooting the shit. We could have done it for four hours, man. But uh, I'll let you hop off of here. And I really oh, appreciate man, your yeah. time. And guys, thank you for listening. Uh, and until the next one, stay tuned for Retired to Hunt. <laughs>